You are listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, York Region. For more information, visit hbcyr.ca. Well, good morning, Harvest. Good morning, Harvest. There we go. That's, that's better. It's great to, uh, great to be with you, to be able to share this time with you. My wife and I, uh, Cheryl, have had a, a great time uh, here this weekend, and our... Um, our history goes back. Daniel mentioned a little bit of, of that, and we love this church and what God has been doing more recently. Um, and, and by that, I mean the last like 10, 11 years. But uh, my wife's history in particular goes back a lot longer with this church in that uh, in 2008, Harvest um, merged, didn't have a building, and merged with Centennial Baptist. I don't know how much you know the history of this. And Centennial Baptist had built this building and was on this location. And Cheryl's parents, my in-laws, uh, were charter members of um, Centennial Baptist Church back in 1967. And so their history with this church and all that God has been doing here goes back a long, long way. And 30 years this coming December, um, Cheryl and I are celebrating uh, our anniversary, and we were married right about on this spot right here uh, 30 years ago. And um, the church looked a little different back then. And uh, so we're grateful to be back um, this weekend to be able to share uh, with you uh, in God's Word. And again, so grateful for the opportunity. All right, we're going to uh, get into God's Word here. We are going to be in Luke chapter 24. So hopefully you have your Bibles uh, with you and you've got them open to Luke's Gospel. And I want, to, I want you to give some thought to this. We're going to talk about fact and feelings for a second. Facts and feelings. Uh, how many people in the room, you would just say you're more of a facts person. You like the facts. Raise your hand. Do you raise your hand in the 11 o'clock service? Raise your hand. If you're a facts person, you like the facts. How many people, you would just say you're more of a, more, more of a feelings person? Raise your hand. Okay, which leaves a lot of people who don't know anything about themselves. Facts people, uh, you know who you are, you're objective, you uh, like evidence, you like data, you like proofs, and when you have all of that, if you have those things, you ha if the facts are in for you, then you can have certainty about whatever it is you're trying to decide on or discussing. But let's see if this isn't also true, feelings. And I can just sense the fact people, I'm losing you right away. Because as soon as I start talking about feelings, the facts people, we're out, I'm out. But, but feelings, subjective, uh, emotion-based, sensing, sensing that something could be true and right, feelings could also lead to certainty. Now, I know I'm losing the fact people right now, but hang in with me for just a second. So both facts and feelings, this is, the, this is the premise for the moment, both facts and feelings can lead to certainty. And this is my point. We're going to miss out on an awful lot in life if we simply wait for all the facts to be in. We can miss out on an awful lot in life if we simply wait for all the facts to come in. Because sometimes we need to listen to our hearts, and this is a phrase out of today's passage, sometimes we need to listen to our hearts because they burn within us. Our hearts burn within us. Now, a huge qualification, okay? The, the feeling of rightness is never enough on its own 
Okay, that's where postmodernism goes off the rails. That's where relativism goes off the rails. Eventually, and this is where I'm going to get the facts people back, feelings must be supported by the facts. And all the facts people said, amen, amen. <laughs> now, here's, here's Luke. We're in Luke's gospel. Luke writes his gospel to a man named Theophilus. If you go back to chapter 1 and verse 4, he actually says to him, he says, um, that you would have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. And Luke takes us back to that theme in chapter 24, right at the end of the gospel, to reassert this idea of certainty, that everything that's written in the gospel, all of that is something that we can be absolutely certain about. And so in chapter 24, in verses 13 through 35, we meet these two disciples, and they did not yet have all the facts. But over the course of the narrative, they have this feeling that they can't quite shake. And the combo of both facts and feeling lead them to a certainty about Jesus Christ. And this encounter that these two disciples have with Jesus on the road to Emmaus, this is going to help us today to get to that very same place of certainty. Certainty in who Jesus is, certainty in what he taught, certainty in what he did. So that every person who's here this morning hopefully will leave with a greater certainty about Jesus as our Lord and as our Savior. And we're going to see how having that certainty then plays out these massive implications in terms of how we live as Christians. So let me read the passage. It's lengthy. I'll read the passage and then we're going to go after this. How can we have certainty about Jesus? Luke 24, uh, verse 13. That very day, and, and that very day he's talking about is the resurrection day. This is Sunday, okay? Um, the Sunday of the resurrection of Christ. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But... Their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and the rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe, all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all, in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. 
So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. Well, here's the declaration. That's an awesome passage, isn't it? Here's the declaration we want to make out of that passage by the end of this message. I have certainty about Jesus. Now, here's what we're going to go after. I have certainty about Jesus because I know his presence. I know his presence. Now, I'm going to concede at the outset as I read this passage, they didn't know that they were in the presence of Jesus. They didn't know that Jesus was with them. Verse 13, they're just going to a village. Verse 14, they're talking as they go along the way. Verse 15, Jesus himself, unknown to them, drew near and went with them. Verse 16, but their eyes were kept, their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Now, important to talk a little bit about grammar right here. How many people love grammar? That's about the number of people I would expect. Like five or six people in a room this size like grammar. And, but it's so important here just to understand something about what's going on. But there's, there's, a, there's a passive voice here. And it's actually a divine passage. So that what this verse is really saying is their eyes were kept by God. They were kept by God from recognizing him. So it wasn't coming from inside of them. God, for his own purposes, is keeping them from seeing that this is Jesus. But let me ask you a question, very, very simple answer to this. Was Jesus with them? The answer is yes, he was with them. Whether they knew it or not, and they didn't, he was there. And I feel like there's a lesson in, in that right there that we could jot down and we could take home even when I don't know that Jesus is with me, even when I don't sense that he's with me, even when I've ignored the fact that he's with me. Jesus is with me. Do you believe that? Jesus is with me. I feel like we could close the message off right here. I could close in prayer right now. We could end this whole thing. We could be to the restaurants before the Pentecostals. I really believe that. <laughs> but I have a lot more in my notes that I'd like to get through. So Jesus was with them. Now, the advantage, of course, that we have over these two disciples is we don't have a divine passive hanging over us. We know he's with us. We have the completed scripture here in our hand. We know the whole story. So then what would be our problem when it comes to the presence of God? Richard Rohr said this. I love what he said. We cannot attain the presence of God. It's not something you grasp for, something you reach for. We cannot attain the presence of God, we're already totally in the presence of God. What's absent is awareness. There are just simply times in our life as Christians that we become unaware that God is with us. And not because of a divine passive, not because God is keeping us from understanding that he's with us, but because of an active uh, action or decision on our part to hold God at bay, to ignore or forget him. And that's the challenge. Why? 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 
do we fail to understand that God is with us, to be aware of that? Actually, thought it would be helpful to build a little list here and go after some of these things. Uh, first would be this. We fail to experience the presence of God uh, because of distraction. There's just too much going on in our lives. My life is just so, so busy. It's so frenetic. We fill our calendars with activity. Our, our staff in another week um, or so, we're going to get together and do a, a full year planning. We'll get all our pastors and directors together. They're going to bring all of their events and all the things that are happening in their ministries. We're going to plan an entire calendar from September to June. And some churches have the, the goal of like filling the calendar with as much as, much as they can. And, and our goal is actually quite different than that. We want to try and keep as much white space on the calendar for marriages and for families and for individuals to have their own time. We don't want to keep people super busy. We keep ourselves so busy and we fill our calendars with activities and so much distraction. We have too busy of a pace. We have messed up priorities. As we're meeting in here for this service, no doubt the traffic is building on McAllen and Highway 7 because so many people have so many places to go and there's so much on the calendar. Beyond the things we, we put on there, we, we get so focused on our, on our circumstances and the circumstances themselves in our lives become a distraction to us. I mean, think back to the text that we're in here. These two disciples, their circumstances were crushing to them. We'll see that in a bit. But, but beyond that, they had just left Jerusalem. By their own testimony, the things that they explained to the stranger, who's Jesus, they knew all about what happened Sunday morning. They got together, they were together with the full group of disciples when the women went off to the tomb. And when they came back, they explained the whole thing, which meant they were there. They heard that the women had received this message from angels. And yet... Their calendar had written on it for Sunday evening, go to Emmaus. And so they did. The circumstances of their life, the things that they had put on their calendar dictated to them what they were doing and it was distracting them from the very presence of God. We're such distractible people. We're always filling our lives with so much activity. And then beyond that, when we do manage to carve out even just a minute or two, even, even just a little gap in the schedule, the first thing we do is we reach for our iPhones. And we fill our lives with more distraction. We cruise through social media. We send a text. We read text. We read email. We, we're just filling our lives with distraction. And we fail to experience the presence of God Secondly, and related to it, is, is, is noise. We, we, we have come as a culture to, to despise quiet. We can't handle it when there's, when there's silence. How many people here, there's a, there's a beautiful oasis in Collingwood called the Scandinav Spa. How many people know about this place? Raise your hand if you know about the Scandinav Spa. That's good, not too many of you. I don't want the rest of you to know about it. Because it's so wonderful, I don't want you to go there and crowd it. And GTA people have a way of ruining everything for those of us who don't live down here. You come to our area, you ruin everything. So I would just prefer it if you not come up to it. 
The Scandinav Spa is a wonderful place. It's all these outdoor baths, and by baths I mean pools. So like they have hot baths and, and cold baths. You have three different hot baths at different temperatures, 104, 101, 100, and then cold baths at like 58, 59, 60 degrees. You go in the hot baths, you take a plunge in the cold baths. It feels amazing. There's a couple of different saunas that you can go into, a more traditional one and an infrared one. And then there's a, there's a my favorite is the eucalyptus steam room. And you, when you open the door to the steam room, you I mean, you can't even see. It's just like a wall of steam. And you go in there and there's eucalyptus and it cleans out your lungs and your nasal passages. Just wonderful. It's amazing. It's therapeutic. It's, 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 it's um, a beautiful place. And then there's these reading areas inside and outside with big Muskoka chairs. You go in, you can have a nap, you can read. There's hammocks outside in the winter when the gentle snow is falling. There's, there's places around fires that you can, you can sit. And it's a glorious and amazing place. And it only has one rule. That once you enter the area of the baths, you can't talk. And there are signs everywhere, in fact, that just tell you, quiet, please. Quiet, please. And when you're at the counter paying to go into the spas, you sign a waiver, and the waiver says that you will not talk in the baths. People lie. <laughs> People lie. Because they get down there, and they bring their friends with them, and they think it's Tim Hortons. And they're just chatting it up. And I am in a place where I'm trying to get some Sabbath. I'm trying to get some rest. I'm there with my wife. I'm enjoying the time of quiet because my life is busy. And I hear these people talking. And I'm thinking so many evil thoughts about them. <laughs> I mean, and water's readily available. So, like, it wouldn't be impossible to do them harm. It's because we can't handle the quiet anymore. I mean, I just wonder in how many of your homes you would even just say, even when no one's watching TV, we have the TV on because it just creates noise in the home. Or as soon as you get into the car, the first thing you have to do is turn the radio on. You need to listen to some talk radio. You, you, need to, you need to listen to some music. Or if you're out on a walk, you can't just kind of listen to what's going on or have, have your own thoughts as you walk. It's, it's always the earbud and it's always a podcast or it's always Spotify that we just can't cope with quiet. Or, or when you're with people you love or friends and, and it just, you, you get to that awkward silence in the conversation, you know the awkward silence? Maybe it's just silence. Maybe it's not awkward. Maybe you're the only one who thinks it's awkward. And so then, even if you don't have anything to say, because you can't handle the awkward silence, you start talking. Because we have grown unaccustomed to silence into being quiet. And the reality is we've filled our lives with so much noise, it's very, very difficult to hear the voice of God and to know his presence. A couple more, more quickly here. Distraction, noise, third would be self-centeredness. So focused on our own needs and wants, so enamored by the sound of our own voices, can't hear from God, so focused on my own circumstances and what's best for me, that I'm so unaware that God is with me. Or if it's not about me, it could be this fourth one, people-pleasing, so busy listening to what others are saying, so busy attending to the needs of others, trying to please them, that I don't even know God is there. And we have to slow this down 
We have to quiet ourselves if we're to know the presence of God. Here's a second one. I should also have certainty about Jesus because I remember his mission. I remember his mission. If you were to ask, um, most Christians would answer um, the question, why did Jesus come to earth? Most would answer it in this way. They would say, Jesus came to give his life on the cross that we could be forgiven of our sins. I think most Christians would answer the question that way. Why did Jesus come? If, if we were to ask Jesus that question and look through the Gospels and see how did he most often answer that question or give that information, he would say this, and, and we find an example of this in Luke 4.43, where he says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God. Why did you come, Jesus? I came to preach. I'm a preacher. I'm a prophet. I came to tell people about the kingdom of God. Now, him giving his life on the cross being resurrected from the dead, was all part and parcel of the presentation of the kingdom of God to this earth and the offer that God makes to people to be a part of that kingdom. But his purpose in coming was to bring, to preach, to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. And so listen, when we get sidetracked by our circumstances, when life becomes hard and we become distracted, when we can't sense the presence of God or we're uncertain about what's going on in our lives, one of the most effective ways to bring ourselves back is to rehearse the mission again. Why? Why am I here? What's the, what's the refocusing that needs to take place? What's the recalibration that needs to happen because I'm out of sync? Now, these two disciples, that's exactly their situation. Their circumstances are crushing them. Their life is out of sync. They need recalibration. They're out of focus. And Jesus comes up alongside of them on this walk and says to them, verse 17, in essence, what are you guys talking about? And when he asked them that question, verse 17 tells us, they stopped walking. They stood still, looking sad, verse 17 says. Now, I don't know about you, if you've ever been stopped in your tracks by the circumstances of your life. I'm sure many people in this room have. When, when life just became so overwhelming and so crushing, I know about this. I'm in my mid-50s. I've experienced enough of life to know what it's like to be in a very tough place, to be anxious, to not know what's going to happen in light of the circumstances that are going on in my life. I know what being in that kind of situation can do to every other aspect of my life. I know how crushing circumstances, anxiety, all of that affects my marriage. I know how it affects my, my parenting. I know how it affects my friendships. I know how it affects me in the workplace. I know how it affects me physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. I know that the circumstances of life can affect every single aspect of who I am and what I do. And I know many of you in this room know exactly what I'm talking about because you've experienced it too. These two disciples, verse 18, Cleopas and the unnamed disciple. This is, by the way, on the list of things when you get to heaven, I want to find out who was the unnamed guy, right? Do you have a list of those things? Like, I wonder about that. When I get to heaven, I'm going to figure that out. Who's the unnamed disciple here who's with Cleopas, and why did Cleopas uh, get to be named and he didn't? Well, they're anxious, verse 14, said, 
these things that have happened, so the, the crucifixion, the condemnation, crucifixion of Christ, they're, they're really anxious about all of that, and they have no idea how all of this is going to turn out, and they think, okay, the facts are in, they think Jesus is dead, like Jesus is dead, dead, and not, not going to be alive again, like that kind of dead. They're sad about it, and they've left town. They left Jerusalem, and they're having this conversation back and forth in an effort to work it out because they know it's affecting everything else in their lives. They're having this group therapy session as they walk to Emmaus. It's consuming them, and so much so, they're so beside themselves with this, and it's so all-consuming that Cleopas even says to Jesus at one point, he says, like, like, how could you not know? How could you not know? How could you be, have been in Jerusalem during the events and not know what happened? And Jesus is actually, you know, he's kind of he's playing with them a little bit here. Because he knows exactly what happened in Jerusalem because, you know, I mean, it happened to him. And, and he says to them, verse 19, what things? Well, he knows. But he has a purpose in all of this. And here's the thing. He wants them to rehearse the mission. He wants them to say back to him all the things that he had actually taught them. He wants to see if they know it all and, and can recall it and if it's still inside of them rather than him just spoon-feeding it to them. So, He's going to get them to talk it out, rehearse the mission. Verse 19, they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, notice now three things that we learn about Jesus in the verse here. You can see these. A man who is a prophet, remember he came to, to preach and proclaim, that's the prophet part, that's who he is. Secondly, mighty indeed, that's what he did, who he is, what he did, and also mighty in word, what he said and taught. Three things that we learn about Jesus here, who he is, what he did, what he taught. And then they go on to tell how he was, verse 20, betrayed, condemned, crucified. And, and this is really sad how crushed they were about it. But we had hoped, I mean, we, we really thought that he was going to be the one to redeem Israel. But you know, evidently he wasn't because, well, they killed him and it's been three days and, you know, he's He's dead. And then they recount the events of Sunday morning. So they stuck around with the group until Sunday morning. Verse 22, so these women in our group, they amazed us. They went to the tomb this morning, and when they didn't find his body, verse 23, they came back saying that they'd even seen a vision of angels. Can you imagine? I mean, they're just kind of even snickering a little bit as they say it. And the angel said that he was alive. Some who were with us, they go on, verse 24, some who were with us went to the tomb. Evidently, Cleopas and this other guy didn't go. Just some of them went. I don't know. Cleopas was looking at his calendar going, oh, you know what? We should stay behind and pack because we're going to Emmaus later today. But they didn't go to the tomb. They found it just as the women had said, but here it is. Him they did not see. Facts were in. Jesus was dead. 
and now his body was gone. So poor Cleopas and the unnamed disciple, despite the evidence that they do have, they still have not believed. And, and not only have they not believed, but did I mention they left town? They left town. Now as believers, we can get into similar situations despite all the evidence around us, despite the evidence of Christ working in other people's lives, despite the evidence of Christ working in our life, despite the, the evidence of Christ working through us to impact the lives of others. We can lose sight of Him. We can forget what we've been taught. And what can help in such times is going back to rehearse the core things that we believe about Jesus Christ, to go back and remember the things that he said about his mission. Because the only thing that matters is the mission. His mission was to come to preach the kingdom of God, and when he ascended to heaven... He gave that mission to us so that we would go into this world and we would tell this world about the kingdom of God and give the offer of Jesus Christ to those who don't yet have him. That's now our mission. That's our only mission, to please God, to glorify him in the fulfillment of the Great Commission, to make more and better disciples of Jesus Christ. That's our mission. Everything else that's in your life and mine is, is mere details Okay, who you're married to or not married to, how many kids you have and who they are, what your job is, where you went to school, how much money's in your bank account, what car you drive, where you vacation, what you enjoyed doing on your leisure time, what kind of music you listen to, all the things that make up what your life is. Mere details secondary to the mission of Jesus Christ so that if any one of those things is taken away from you, it doesn't affect the mission in the least. Married or not married, was married, lost my marriage. Have a child, don't have child. Had a job, lost a job. Was rich, now poor. Doesn't matter. The circumstances don't take us off the mission. In fact, we would look at the circumstances of life and say, how are these circumstances going to be used by God to help me more effectively complete the mission. And so this all comes back to reviewing. See, the things we learned about Jesus were who he is, what he did, and what he taught. And we need to come back to the same three things. Who am I in Christ? What has Christ done in my life, and what am I supposed to be doing for him? What's my purpose? What have I been taught, and am I teaching that to others? That's the whole thing. And that's going to help us. When we're, when we're on that program, that's going to help us with our certainty. And something that's going to help all of us in that is that I would hear his word. So Cleopas and the other guy had Jesus right there to explain things to them. And a little rebuke here from Jesus, verse 25 now. Now remember, he's still a stranger to them. They've just picked up this conversation on this walk. Verse 25, he calls them fools. He's, oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all of the prophets have spoken. I'm not sure how they reacted to that. We don't have that. But in essence, is Jesus, he's, he's saying to them, you're so thick-headed. You have the word of God. You understood the word of God. Why don't you believe and why aren't you living out what the Bible says? 
a little uh, pastor secret here because I'm going to leave town in about you know, half an hour or so. You know, pastors wonder this about their own churches. I teach you the Bible week after week after week. You hear it. Why aren't you doing it? Pastors would be very reticent to use the words of Jesus, but oh, foolish one, slow of heart to believe. You have the word of God. Why aren't you living it out? You're so sad. You're so confused. You've, you've left town. You've forgotten. You've ignored. You didn't listen to the word of God. And so Jesus asks these two disciples a, a leading question. Verse 26, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into glory? Don't you remember being taught that? Remember hearing that? Only one possible answer. The answer is yes, it was necessary. I don't know. Are they saying we forgot? So in verse 27, he doesn't wait for their answer. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he takes them now to the Hebrew Bible. And as they're walking along to Emmaus, he's teaching them. He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. I wonder if he took them to Genesis 3.15 or if he took them to Psalm chapter 2 or if he took them to Isaiah 53, all of which point to Jesus as the Messiah or any one of the dozens and dozens and hundreds of places where the Messiah is prophesied. I hear his word. I hear his word and it brings me certainty. Now, this thing that we're doing here today, this is not an unusual thing for Christians. This is the normal thing for us. This is what we ought to be doing, gathered together on this Sunday morning, even as the traffic is building on Highway 7 and on McCowan, and people have so many places to go, we're here listening to the preaching of God's Word. Hopefully, you're doing it during the week and getting the Word of God open for yourself and reading it and studying it. This is not an unusual thing. This is what we should be doing. The preacher in Hebrews said this. This is Hebrews 2.1. We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Why? Lest we drift from it. Lest we leave town, forgetting the things that we've learned. Pay much, close, much closer attention. Don't be distracted. Don't fill your life with noise. Don't make life about you. Don't make your life about other people. Pay attention. Pay much closer attention to the Word of God. J.C. Ryle said this, ignorance of Scripture is the root of every error in religion and the source of every heresy. And he was probably thinking of the grand heresies and the, and the great doctrines of the Christian faith that are often under attack. But I'm thinking of our ignorance of Scripture and how, and how that ignorance fuels heresies, personal heresies in our own lives. God owes me. I'm so faithful to him. Why doesn't he bless me more? Why am I going through this trial? All of that, any thinking along that line is a personal heresy that we tell ourselves and we only believe those, these things because we have not read the scriptures. And so I need to hear his word rather than being foolish, rather than being slow of heart to believe. We need to be serious about our study of God's word. 
And as you do, you'll find your certainty about him increasing. All right, here's a fourth one. There's two more left in the notes, am I right? You got your notes there? Is there two more left? All right, here we go. I experience his power. Verse 28, as they approached uh, Emmaus, Jesus uh, pretends. He fakes them out. He, he pretends like he's going to be going farther down the road, and it's a test to see if they were listening to what he said because their track record to this point wasn't great. And they passed the test. Verse 29, they urged him strongly saying, stay with us. Stay with us. Now, normally people didn't travel at night in this part of the world. And, and so they're saying, it's getting late, and, and why don't you come in and stay with us? And Jesus went in, um, went in to stay with them, and they sat down to have a meal. Now, this is on Sunday evening, the day of the resurrection. We know what Saturday was, just kind of like a, he was in the tomb. Friday was the day of his crucifixion, but Thursday, so just like three, four days before, Thursday night was the Passover. The 11 had gotten together with Jesus in the upper room, and they shared the Passover meal, and Jesus transformed it, you'll know. He inaugurated the Lord's table or communion in that moment, and we know that the Lord's table, of course, points to uh, our oneness in Christ, our oneness with Him, our oneness with one another. We take it together. The Lord's table um, is representative of the, the Lord's um, sacrifice for us. And so they were all together and they took this meal. And presumably the 11 would have come. I don't know if the unnamed disciple was one of the 11 and so had the experience or the 11 came and told the rest of the disciples about the inauguration of the Lord's table. But then this is awesome. Verse 30, when he was at table with them, so they're sitting down to have the meal, Jesus took the bread and he prayed for it, he blessed it, and then he broke it and he gave it to them and bam, in that moment. You see what it says in verse 31. Their eyes were opened. Their eyes were opened and they recognized him. Their eyes were opened by God and they recognized him. In sharing the table, they saw the presence of Christ and they received the certainty that they needed. And once they had that, in what is one of the most unfair moments in the gospel, poof, he's gone. It just disappears from their sight. And you would think, well, it would have been awesome if he just stayed for a little while and they could have talked about the whole thing a little bit more. But he vanished from their sight, I suspect, because he had accomplished what he set out to do in that particular instance. In verse 32, they said to each other, did not, did not our hearts burn with it? Didn't we have a feeling? Didn't we have a feeling? Didn't we just sense that there was just something about him while he talked to us on the road? And, and, and when he opened the Scriptures, do you remember that? We felt his presence and his power. Now, the thing is, you and I are not likely to have an encounter like that one as much as we might desire it. It's a pretty specialized situation, but God is no less powerful today. Amen? God is no less powerful today. He's no less interested in seeing lives transformed. He's no less interested in seeing people in the baptistry witnessing to their transformation in Jesus Christ. He's no less forgiving sins. He, he wants to bring about the great re reversal in the life of, of people who are still caught up in their sins. He wants to take people who are caught up in their foolishness and he wants to make them wise. He wants to take people who are slow of heart to believe and make them quick to obey Christ. 
And we have seen how God has worked to save us and restore what has been broken. And if you aren't seeing this, if you are not aware of addicts who are putting away their addictions, if you are not aware of atheists who are embracing God, if you are not aware of people in their deep afflictions turning to Christ as their only hope, then you need to get to a place with people who are seeing these things happen and where these uh, these events that God is bringing about in people's lives are happening. You need to pray that God would put you at the very center of his powerful work among people. Because when you see these things happening, it confirms what you've read in the word and it seals your certainty about Jesus Christ. One more related very closely. I see his work. Verse 33, they went back to Jerusalem right away. It was already night. Again, you don't travel at night. But they went right back to Jerusalem to see the 11 and those who were, who were with them gathered together. Verse 34, Cleopas and the unnamed disciple hear from the 11 and the group in Jerusalem, the Lord has risen indeed. It's confirmed. What the women saw, what the angels said, it's confirmed. And, they add, has appeared to Simon. Peter has had some encounter with Jesus himself. All this happening in the time that, that Cleopas and the other guy uh, were on their way to Emmaus. Then verse 35, then Cleopas and the unnamed disciple told what happened to them. And the certainty of these things now begins to be confirmed to everyone else by the testimony of all these people who are having these encounters with Jesus. We need to hear each other's stories. We need to tell people what God is doing in our lives. I came to Christ when I was 15 years old, um, 40 years ago this month. Um, I was raised in an Anglican home, didn't know the Lord, never heard the gospel. Went to church, but had a sense of God, but that was about as far as it went. Our family went through a massive crisis. We moved from Montreal to southern Ontario, and we went through a massive crisis in many different ways. I don't need to describe all of that, but it drove us to seek out help at the Salvation Army Church. There was some kind of family history in the Salvation Army on my mom's side, and so that's where we went, and we heard the gospel. And in a dark coffee house, youth service-type room, the preacher was talking about the emptiness that you have in your life that can only be filled by Jesus Christ. And he spoke it directly to me. It was like no one else was in the room. I know many of you have a similar story. And on that night, I raised my hand to indicate that I wanted Jesus Christ to fill that void in my life. And I felt, I felt Jesus overwhelm me with his presence as I was saved in that very moment. I spent the first six years of my walk with Christ in the Salvation Army, so it holds a very special place in my life. The founder of the Salvation Army was a man named William Booth. He founded it back in the 1800s in England. And in the early days, I want to tell you this story, in the early days of the Salvation Army, Booth was conducting a meeting in Whitechapel with a congregation. About 1,200 people were there. Normally, his speaking was dynamic. He could hold a crowd spellbound. But on this night, the number of godless people was higher than usual, and some were quite violent in making a real nuisance, and he was making no impression. Among his supporters was a man that in the account he's called a gypsy hawker. I'm almost certain that that's a politically incorrect phrase today. He's a gypsy hawker. He was a, a, a traveling salesman, a, a snake oil type guy, uh, unscrupulous in his dealings. But he had been converted a few weeks earlier. 
He called him to the platform to tell of the change of his life in his life. Just come tell your story. And as soon as he started to talk, a silence fell over the hall. For this man had been known for his wayward living. His words were bungling. But they rang true and the attention of the crowd was recaptured. And Booth later said to his son, Willie, I shall have to burn all those old sermons of mine and go in for the gypsies. And from then on, he encouraged more testimony in his meetings, believing that the ordinary working men in their corduroys and bowler hats could command attention from their own class, which refused point blank to me with my theological terms and superior knowledge. The work of the Holy Spirit resides in the lives of ordinary people, in the lives of every single person in this room who names Jesus Christ. The power of your story to impact others and to help others come to a place of certainty about Jesus Christ is unquestioned. That we would all get to the place in telling our stories to one another, get to the place where we're certain about who Jesus Christ is, what he taught, and what he did, and what he's continuing to do in all of our lives. I pray that we would all have that certainty about him today. Let me pray for us. Father, I am uh, grateful for uh, this church, for this gathering of believers. You have been kind and merciful, and you have done a powerful work that is evident over uh, these 11 years. And, and Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would continue his work here. For, perhaps, Father, to save some in this room who have not yet come to faith in Christ. And for sure, Father, we would pray that we would all be going out upon the hearing of your word. We would all be going out with a greater certainty of who Jesus is. The word has been preached. And many hundreds have listened to it be preached. But Father, that is just an exercise in speaking apart from your Spirit's work. And so God, we desperately need you to act in this moment to convince us and convict us of these truths and to cement our certainty in who Jesus Christ is and what he taught and what he's done. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.